Hey everyone, this is another episode of the Divergent Conversations podcast. I'm your co-host, Patrick Casal. And I'm Dr. Neff. And Megan is going to kind of start us off today following up and continuing on the conversation we had last week about diagnosis history. Yes. So I messaged you right after we stopped recording and I was like, hey, can we continue that conversation next week? I think my thought after we recorded was that was cool to talk about our diagnosis experience and like post-diagnosis, our response to it. But I, I left feeling like that's that's not actually my diagnosis story. Those are the details of kind of surrounding my diagnosis. But my diagnosis story starts back when I was like a two or three-year-old eating dirt out of the plant and then becoming an OCD anxious child. And like my story, my diagnosis story starts with my misdiagnosis story. So I thought it'd be really interesting to go back and talk about like Patrick and Megan Anna as undiagnosed children and teens. There's something you said last week about a lot of the questions that you had about yourself, you were kind of answering under this umbrella of complex trauma. I was also trying to answer questions and like putting on lenses, like, is there repressed trauma here? So I just, I think that would be a really interesting area for us to continue to explore. Yeah. When you brought that up to me, I started thinking about it and it it started to make a lot of sense to have that conversation. And I think you know, you just brought up something that clicked for me. Like we are so often seeking these answers, right? Like Hmm. why the why behind something? Why do I present this way? Why do I act this way? Why do I experience life this way? And I think we're always constant, constantly, not just existentially, but like there's this, there's this need to know. And yes, yes. I think that's really important to, to just be mindful of, of like how badly people who feel like they don't belong or fit in are trying to figure out the why behind that Mm -hmm. and how challenging and painful that can be as an experience throughout the duration of a lifespan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right before I was diagnosed, I'd been in depth therapy with a psycho um, analytic psychotherapist for three years. And I was, we were at the point of the work of like, I was coming to accept, I would just never have answers to all of these questions. Like that was my work. And then I got answers, which was lovely. Um, but yeah, there, there's so much searching. I, I've so many, particularly women and gender queer people have reached out with a similar story of, um, I was looking into like the, the possibility of repressed trauma to exper- like to explain this. But just people spending thousands and thousands of dollars and time in psychotherapy trying to get those answers. And so much frustration along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Each misdiagnosis leading to more irritation and frustration and just kind of wanting to wave the white flag Mm -hmm. of like, all right, I've tried everything I can. Yeah. None of this is accurate. I fucking give up. Well, it's it's almost, I think we could even think of it as a reenactment when every time there's a misdiagnosis, like our experience of misattunement to the world, our experience of being misattuned to ourselves. Every time we're misdiagnosed, we're re-experiencing a misattunement. And so I think, and and then, so a classic story, right? Especially people who are more fight-flight oriented, they get misdiagnosed. 
their fight flight instincts come out. They get angry at the provider. The provider comes back like, oh, I think this is BPD. <laughs> like, and then, and then we're definitely off and running with an enactment. Yeah. And then leading to a lifetime of stigmatization and discrimination mm -hmm. and therapists who don't want to work with you and yep. kind of push to the, to the side of saying, oh, this person is, is going to do A, B, and C when they come to therapy or yeah. Yeah. they're going to be difficult to work with. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to do a study of like self-alienation among late in life diagnosed. And I really, it's funny, late in life diagnosed can mean so many things. I think I think of like 30 plus when I, I, I mean, later 20s is definitely a later time to be diagnosed. My child who's diagnosed at 11, that's late for a child. So, but like 30 plus, it'd be really interesting to look at like self-alienation. Um, yeah. cause I bet there'd be a lot of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that there would. So take us back to Megan, Anna's childhood. Like what are we noticing? Yeah. What's coming up when you're thinking uh -huh. about going back in time and just some of the, the things that were showing up or you were mm -hmm. experiencing that you can remember? Yeah. I mean, I actually have pretty good memory, like a lot of autistic people. Um, so the eating dirts and plants, I definitely, and I like remember eating paper it's so weird because I say in these things now, it's like, oh, that's obvious. It just, it never seemed weird to me. It was like, of course you would see what paper tasted like in dirt. And of course dirt is delicious out of plants. Okay. Um, but that was How one of those things. Differently, like that's just your reality at the yeah. time. Yeah. So pika, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but pika is really common among autistic children. Um, and so that, that was present. I don't, I wasn't necessarily the child that had like huge tantrums um in early childhood i did start having like some depression anxiety and ocd and i remember like i would retreat to my closet a lot and i would kind of hide in there i'd make up songs like really sad songs and um so I, there's definitely some depression early in life i had a lot of rituals which it's hard to know if that like and this is really hard to tease out with ocd and autism but I had a lot of rituals, like um, every time my, I would leave my parents, I'd say, goodbye, love you, don't die. And if I missed it, I'd be so anxious all day that they were going to die because I hadn't like, I mean, that seems more OCD because it's, I'm trying to protect something from it. Um, but my parents, they did, I have talked to them a lot. It's, so my dad's a psychologist, so that's interesting, right? I have talked to them a bit about what they saw. And they definitely noticed the OCD stuff. I had a lot of um, like how I would move my face. I need, if I move my nose this way, I'd have to make it even. So I'd be like doing a lot of things like that or I had to make things I touched even. So there's a lot of like OCD rituals I was doing early in childhood. And they had a conversation apparently about, do we seek out like help and diagnosis? They obviously weren't thinking autism. I'm a child of the eighties, like, um, more OCD stuff. And ultimately they decided like, let's not stigmatize this by getting treatment, um, which again, in the eighties, that made a little bit more sense than that would now. And kind of see, see what happens. And it did, it kind of passed, which can be common for children. It got internalized in my adolescence, which we can maybe talk about later. Um, and I, I was, i I was a sensory seeker. So I like would, I have two older sisters they were always very close. I was always the outsider. It was like my first, my sibling relationship was my first social isolation. 
Um, and I would, I think I would purposely, like the sensory seeker in me would purposely bug them. So I had difficulty in those relationships and difficulty in friendships. It was more though, because I had this like idealized best friend and then I'd be disappointed. At least that was the narrative I was telling myself. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a clustering of, of early childhood. Oh, and I had difficulty reading. Um, looking back, I had surface level dyslexia. I think I still probably do, which is why I still have grammar errors that go out to hundreds of thousands of people on Instagram sometimes. Um, so reading in school were so painful for me. I hated going to school. Um, I didn't have words for it, but looking back, it's like, I was so bored. I was so sensory overloaded. I was so confused. Like I wasn't tracking, um, the teacher. So I also had this as a child, I had a pretty strong sense that I was stupid and I, I saw my sisters being very smart. So yeah, I don't know. That, that was my early childhood. What was your early childhood? Like, was it as bright and beautiful as mine? It was super fucking dark. Like I have such little memory of childhood because my parents got divorced at, when I was five and it was, it was a really hmm. volatile, traumatizing divorce and we moved a lot. So like there was just a lot of um, disorientation and dissociation and just the inability mm -hmm. to really find any sort of grounding or regulation. Um, and I do remember like some of the stuff that you're mentioning, like as a kid eating, eating stuff because like, like mint flavored chapstick and like, <laughs> I was oh, yeah, was, I eat chapstick like, too. And like, yeah, why do uh, they do that? It's like, they're trying to get, like, what are you supposed to do with it? So I just eat like sticks of it and get sick. Um, oh my God. I, would eat like um not play-doh but like i would definitely like bite and chew and smell everything especially like yep. silly putty play-doh mm -hmm. um i do remember that really vividly i had i had um collections of things like yes, I had I endless amounts of beanie babies one i thought mm -hmm. i was gonna be like rich but also i had like tons of them i had this Garfield collection where it was just like everything Garfield ceramics oh that's uh, amazing everything like I had this massive paper mache Garfield bank that I bought at a yard sale and like all of this stuff and then like weird obsessions that come to mind now like pugs the animal like pug bags and stuffed animals and, uh -huh. and figurines um was really obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I had like tons of Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff. Oh my um, gosh. Do you remember who Jonathan Taylor Thomas was? I do. Um, I was obsessed with him. I would have celebrity crushes. I put posters of him all over my room. Like I had a bunk bed. I put posters on the ceiling. So I'd like, it'd be the last thing I would see before I'd go to bed at night. Um, yeah, I, I would special interest hard on cute celebrity boys. Yeah. I, I had a lot of those special interests. I think that's the one thing that stands out to me. And I think the other thing is like two things you named. Class and school was so boring for me. Um, mm -hmm. I would trouble a lot. I couldn't sit still. I would blurt mm -hmm. things out in class. I mean, 
a lot of what we're talking about probably fits more of the the ADHD type for me at the time, but like, but I would get straight A's. I wouldn't have to try. I'd retain mm. information really easily. I was in advanced reading. I do remember being in speech therapy though when I was younger. I couldn't really. Um, yeah, that's really common. Yep. Yeah, but I don't remember much of it. I just remember like having to leave class and do it. One thing that's always stood out is the challenge with connecting and making friends. I don't think I made my first like actual friend until third grade. That that always stood out to me mm -hmm. where it was just very challenging. I have four sisters as well. So I was mm -hmm. always kind of like on this island and just reading mm -hmm. a lot by myself a lot. And mm -hmm. I think also like as we get into like adolescence, I got in trouble all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. Like I stuff to I did some like really bad stuff as a teenager and but I was seeking it out but I think a lot of uh -huh. that too was like I didn't have parents who were paying attention to me so yeah yeah even if all the signs were there that you know your son is autistic they were never going to get me tested or support because the divorce was messy and they were just kind of like yeah, unable to almost take care of themselves as adults. So it was a lot of self-soothing and that became something that has still been one of my coping mechanisms to this mm -hmm. day is self-soothe of like not asking for help, having to do everything on your own. And that could be obviously that brings its own challenges with that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you use, when you talk about kind of self-soothing on your own, like, would you say you have a more avoidant attachment style? Oh, yeah, for sure. Same. Uh, yeah. You know, it was like, that's why I think I was like fantasy so much. Like I could yeah. escape into it. Um, Definitely was like avid Goosebumps reader, boxcar kids. Uh, I love boxcar kids. It was like my fantasy to be one. Like it's the first book, particularly when they're setting up the boxcar and they're like getting the dishes. I don't know what that first book. I, I probably reread it so many times. There's something like oh, romanticized about that, right? Of like, yes. run away and like live in this like yeah. secret place and like have this family here, um, this unit to to support you with. And uh, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit stuff, like that was obsessive. Like that was mm -hmm. special interest to the max and like rereading and rereading and often like, going off into those worlds because it was the only place that I could feel playful. It was the only place I could yeah. feel safe. And I was like, this is this. And it's still a big part of my life yeah. today. You know, I, I see a lot of that in like assessments. I do people, folks I work with, like when books are special interests, um, it's, it's harder to detect because that's a positive thing, right? Like, Oh good. Like Patrick's off reading. Like no one's, no one's like oh, Patrick's off reading for hours. We should go get him an autism assessment like no one's thinking yeah. that way when when books are the special interest right absolutely that's a great point but then if you're like behind the scenes you're like but patrick read the lord of the rings trilogy 10 times this week like yep. continues to reread it and reread it yeah. and reread it and yeah. if you offer him something new then he's going to get really irritable and there could be some sort of meltdown that happens yep yep yeah that's why you always like this is something when I consult with therapists learning about assessment, it's like, don't, don't, you can't just stay at the surface of like, what do you do for fun? I read, it's like, what do you read? How many times do you read it? What do you watch? How many times do you, oh, how many times have you watched that series? 
Like you've got to do that second layer of questioning around these really common responses. Like I read, I watch TV. Well, there's concrete black and white responses, right? Of like very, everything's linear. Everything's really fact-based and everything's really concrete. So without going beneath the surface, without asking those those questions to, that aren't just yes or no questions, right? Like you mentioned last week about your husband uh, telling your daughter there was meat in the food when there clearly wasn't. And just the mm-hmm. reaction. And that's the same thing. Like, what do you do for fun? Oh, I play soccer. Oh, I write. Oh, I watch this show. But if you're like, what do you watch? How many times do you watch it? How many, what characters do you really like? What characters do you not like? Then you mm-hmm. kind of start developing that worldview of like, oh, here are the special interests that are really coming in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love hearing about people's collections and childhood special interests. Um, you have, you mentioned like, you were like, oh, I kind of had that too. Like Beanie yeah. Babies were a thing for sure. Um, I had some Beanie Babies. I more, I think my collections, when I was a young child, I had a coin collection, which is kind of boring. Um, but I had a coin collection cards. Really? <laughs> um, basketball cards was my thing and i like went to this like small card shop in oregon and got a really good deal on like four thousand basketball cards and i spent so much time organizing them and then reorganizing them at first i'd organize them by team and then by rookie but i couldn't do like rookie and team which was so frustrating for me (laughs) like i couldn't figure out my perfect um way to catalog all these cards but i was the portland trail blazers were like huge special interests um Robinson was another like special interest person. He was a he was a basketball player for the Blazers back in the nineties, and I got three of his auto autographs on cards throughout my childhood. So Blazers basketball cards was huge collection. The other one was Barbies. It's really interesting. I remember I'd buy a Barbie, and instead of like playing with it, I like the whole idea of like having characters talk to each other. Um, I I can't do that. I, even as a mom, I can never play with my kids that way. But what I would do is I'd pull out the like the marketing pamphlet you get with it. And I would just fantasize about like building my Barbie collection and like, okay, I'll buy this next. And then like, it'll be a whole set. And it, it was about building building the collection. It, it wasn't about playing with them. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I had like, um, like these action figures that I would do that with, like wouldn't play with them, but it was nice to collect them and create the worlds that they lived in. Mm-hmm. definitely had a coin collection had a lot of like minerals and rocks and gems and all sorts Wait, of stuff both have had rock collection yeah that's a common one yeah i feel like i still have one today because i just like finding cool rocks where i when i'm traveling mm-hmm. but like yeah all of that stuff is coming back to me now where it was just like well yeah i was i was a weird fucking kid off <laughs> on my own just doing these things mm-hmm. and Nobody knew, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that was soothing and also unbelievably isolating. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that experience of isolating and then finding comfort in fantasy, I think that's a really common, I, I know I resonate with that. I spent a a lot of time in fantasy, um, which I think can be hard on relationships when, when our way to self-soothe is to isolate and then escape into a fantasy world where everything's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is very true. And I still do that to this day. 
um, with more intuition and more introspection now and awareness, but I do escape into fantasy when I'm feeling like when we talked about autism burnout, when I'm burnt out or just really yeah. low. And that is just a way to kind of escape or just soothe or find that comfort and that, and that um, connection that you're kind of missing out on a lot of the time. Yeah. You can kind of connect with the characters and, and feel like you can envision being a part of that world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to college, but I think one pattern that was pretty unhelpful for me um, it, this was so helpful when I learned that people could be special interests because that happened to me so much throughout my life. Um, but especially like dating college, high school years. Um, but like when a person's a special interest and then you're prone to fantasy, like, and the fantasy of the, of the person and you're like fantasizing what you would do with that person is always better than the reality of actually being with another body in a room when you're autistic, in my opinion. Um, because it, because it's hard to be, in in a body let alone like around another body who chews and like right um and so that dynamic always was hard on dating relationships for me it was so helpful in my psychoanalytic training when i started changing my relationship to my imagination and fantasy i used to feel i think maybe some guilt around it that's probably come from like old fundamentalism but now I just have curiosity. Like, so in fantasy, I, I think your fantasy world sounds a little bit different than mine. It sounds like you're going into a, a fantasy world someone else has created. I tend to have more fantasy around like my ideal self and idealized relationships or interactions. Um, once I was able to shift toward curiosity of like, what is this fantasy telling me about like my unmet needs or what I'm desiring in this moment versus comparing my real life to that fantasy? That was a huge shift for me that that really has helped me have a healthier relationship to fantasy. So I like hearing that perspective for sure. Yeah, I've always had a hard time creating my own like version of that. Like my therapist will ask me to drop into that. Like we do a lot of IFS work and parts work. And she's like, can you visualize this, 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 and this? And I'm like, I can't, I cannot access this. Like I can't recreated i can't i don't i just have that like absolute immediate blockade and it's interesting but like um it's just always been one of those things where those special interests have kind of helped you get by along the way yeah Yeah. because bring such comfort and satisfaction and excitement Mm -hmm. and joy and you know what the fuck am i doing with 300 Garfield items, like nothing. They're sitting on this shelf. Like they were so comforting at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah I mean, it's such, sales. it's such a powerful way that we self-soothe and self-regulate. That's when, again, when I'm working with people, consulting with therapists around how to be a more neurodivergent from a therapist, I like sensory and special interests. Those are the two things that I start with of like, your sensory safety and sensory regulation and um, incorporate special interests. That's how, if you, if you're feeling like you're not able to access that person's inner world, um, get them talking about their special interests, see emotion, you're going to see excitement, you're going to see passion. And it's how we self-soothe and self-regulate. It's, it's a really powerful thing we have access to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, that's spot on. So 
then when we're talking about like what does teenage years look like for you because that i have a little bit more ability to tap into like i have such a hard time remembering years like three three ten eleven like those feel they feel murky they feel like they're behind this like mr film or like they're not accessible a lot of the time mm-hmm. teenage can we do, let's just skip it yeah teenage years were rough which for a lot of autistic girls that's when things tend to get pretty rough because you really start noticing the social differences because like female social communication gets much more nuanced um and more dependent on like emotional sharing so my teenage years i was like seriously struggling with depression anxiety self-harm and suicidality at that point like my mental health was um a mess and my at that point, I did get into therapy, which was helpful. And um, yeah, I, I got the support I needed. Religion was my special interest at that time, which I have. Oh, my gosh. Religion and autism could be its own. Well, it, I was going to say it's own episode. It could be its own podcast. Um, there's a lot of ways looking back that I think my fundamentalist upbringing was very not good for me. In some ways, having that in those high school years when I was so depressed and suicidal provided, it provided, okay, I'm going to use big analytic words. It provided a big other. It provided an anchor for me and I needed something to orbit. And I think that's what special interests do is they give us something to orbit. So religion was that thing, but I was so, so like literal with it, concrete with it. It was, I had a pretty unhealthy relationship to it. Um, so as this like very religious high schooler who was very depressed, very anxious. Well, actually, I was more depressed and anxious. I would say I was depressed and religious. Um, the other thing that's really interesting to look back, starting my sophomore year of high school, one thing I started doing is, and I did this partly out of my like religious rhetoric, was I would look for the the kids who were eating alone at lunch, like in the halls, and I'd go eat with them. So this might be like um, kids with disabilities who are in the, at that time, like the special ed classes or just kind of the social outcasts who were eating alone. And I had like a rotating group of four or five that I'd go eat with. Um, and back then, I, th- I think I thought I was doing as this, like I was being a really good Jesus father, right? you know, coming to the marginalized. Um, looking back, I think that was an adaptation. I think the cafeteria probably overwhelmed me. I think there's probably, like I did have some friends, but I think there's probably some awkwardness around like eating lunch and socializing and where do I sit, that it was much easier to be seen as this like virtuous human sitting with the outsiders um, than to be the awkward person in the cafeteria, not knowing where to sit and being overloaded. So it was really interesting looking back on my history. I did a lot of like, like seeking out the outcasts as a kind of virtuous human to feel good about myself when really it's like, those were my people. I didn't want to, I didn't want to acknowledge it. I wanted to come in as this like virtuous um, person who was doing something kind to them, which, you know, is gross thinking back. But it's a really interesting adaptation to my social difficulties in high school. Yeah, I'm thinking about that because it's interesting to think about in general the, the adaptation and seeking out 
the quote unquote outcasts or those who are struggling socially too. And I think throughout my life, and my friends would say this now and college friends especially would make fun of me for it, but that I was always doing that, like finding the people who were clearly struggling mm-hmm. and connect them. Um, that even goes for like homeless folks. When I was in college, like my friends would be like, Patrick was always talking to these homeless people who were yeah, like, same, walking same. the streets in upstate yep. New York. It's like, yeah, I just kind of get you. I think you are intuitively drawn to those who are suffering um, because there's that communal suffering without having to name it. And I think yep. that also plays a role socializing as a teenager when you're also struggling and hormones are raging and like all these social norms are starting to become your reality, but you don't know how to conform or adapt or, or fit in. And thankful, thank fucking God. And I'm not a religious person that I had soccer because it was the only saving grace for me where it was like, I played soccer in, in all throughout my life from five years old till now. And, um, you know, in, in junior high playing junior varsity, then in high school playing varsity. And like, that was just the thing. And there was the routine and there was the structure and it was the socializing, Mm -hmm. having to actually talk or communicate. And um, that intensity seeking too of like, Mm -hmm. Oh man, go out and just run hard for 90 minutes and be competitive. And like, that was wonderful. But like, there were so many destructive behaviors going on too, like feeling so isolated and depressed and disconnected and unsure of who I was. And like, the masking component is like the straight A's and the soccer team and like all this stuff. But in reality, what's happening behind the scenes is like lots of drug use and experimentation, lots of drinking, hanging out with the wrong people, getting into lots of trouble. And if not for my privilege, I probably should have ended up in jail multiple times for things that we did as teenagers. And just the realization of like, there was so much unhealthy coping behavior behind the scenes to deal with the inability to feel connected to anything or anchored to anything or, or any sense of what was going on. I, I couldn't sit still. You and I talked about this the other day of like that inability to feel that relief within your body where you have to be doing something all the fucking time and how torturous that is. And I can remember calling friends at like a Tuesday five or six o'clock and I'd be like what are you doing Tuesday like I'm not doing anything like can I come over like can I get out of my house can I get out of can I be in movement to like do something else and that that was very very challenging (laughs) yeah yeah how how old were you when the like experimenting with drug and and alcohol started I was young. I mean, probably we're talking like 14-ish, 13, 14. Oh, young. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had a good friend who had older brothers and older sisters and spent Well, and you were unmedicated ADHD, which we know like so yep. increases the risks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, that was a way for a lot of people, not just autistic folks, but like it's it was just socializing and connection. It was like... Yeah. Yeah. can go do this thing that we shouldn't be doing and it'll make us feel okay for the moment and feel connected mm-hmm. and that it just gets so unhealthy and so quickly it gets so destructive too well, yeah yeah 
it, and it makes so much sense be, because yeah, for all the reasons you mentioned it, the social connection reduces the strain around that. And yeah. Yeah. And I think like those were rough years and it sounds like they were really challenging for you as well. And then when you move into like early adulthood, going into college, equally as challenging, if not more so, I think for myself, I don't know about for you, but I know like ages 17 till 21, 22 were really fucking hard too. I I think I had a slightly different experience. Um, they, they definitely had its moments, but for me, high school was so, so hard. Um, that when I got to college, it that's like my mom used to say, like you blossomed when you got to college. I think I had more learning difficulties than you did. Um, so, and, and it was never diagnosed, but like, like yeah, school was just hard for me. But when I got to college and I got to study the things I was passionate about, um, that just like really changed me. And when I got into an academic culture, for me, um academic culture has been where I get to camouflage because I can talk at a really like cognitive level and it's not weird. Um, you don't have to do as much small talk in academic culture. So I think some of my quirks just got interpreted as being academic and I, and I went to some pretty like academic institutions. So for me, college, and then I went straight from college to seminary. So I did seven years of school. I think I also like school because it gives me structure. Like I've done 10 years of graduate school. I, I'm and, and I just signed up to, um, I just applied for an uh, institute, an uh, analytic institute. So I'm always in school because I think the structure and it gives me a place where I feel, I don't feel as outcast. I feel outcast when I'm like in any kind of conversation outside of academia, essentially. Right. So school for you was actually really comforting in a lot of ways. Once I got to higher ed in high school and below, I, I really, it's so interesting I really thought I, I wasn't smart. Um, and and then I, I realized once once I could study in my areas of special interests, um, I, ca I can be pretty for like, it's so it's so interesting. I'm having a hard, hard time saying I'm smart. I, I think I am smart. I think I am good with ideas and, and writing. And but it's so hard for me to to say that because it was before college. It was just it was a struggle. Yeah, it was just so hard in every sense of the word it sounds like mm -hmm. yeah it's it's hard to embrace that you are very intelligent that you have a lot of great ideas that you put a lot of great ideas out to the world i imagine that got to be conflicting at times when you go back to like younger you you know i'm the workbook i'm working on for this month right now is on core schemas which is essentially when we're young we create these maps of who we are and who others are and it's so hard when we interact with information that doesn't align with our core schema. There's this idea from social social psychology called self-verification theory. So when something when we're given feedback that doesn't align with our belief of self, we tend to reject it. So even you just saying that, like it's hard to accept that you are smart. Like I started to fog out a little bit of like this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. I'm going to reject Patrick's words. Um and I think this happens so much for autistic people, our core schemas tend to be very shame-based because of early life experiences. So then positive feedback can make us feel, A, we can reject it, but B, it can, it can make us feel bad because it doesn't align with our core self. 
Thanks for naming that. And we could do an episode on that for sure. Um, just core schemas and, and core beliefs of who we are and who we believe we are and our, what we believe in our capabilities as well. I have a really hard time taking positive feedback as well. And it just always hits me the wrong way where I'm like, grosses yeah. me out. Most I'm like, yeah, I, at that. I just had that reaction and now I'm noticing I had that reaction. And then I went to an academic concept, which is how I regulate, right? Like you said something nice about me. I started to get a little dysregulated because I was like, that, da, 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 that doesn't feel good. And I'm like on camera. And so I went to my safe place, which is let's talk about social psychology and course schemas. I love that we're, you're, we're noticing this in the moment for everyone watching and listening, because this is, these are coping skills. This is how people can circle back and anchor and ground again when you start to feel yourself drifting away. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing I, what those things are that ground us is so helpful. So helpful. I mean, because, you know, there's a laundry list of ways to ground and you can look through 99% of them. And if they don't resonate or they don't feel comfortable to do, you're going to reject them. Mm -hmm. and, and it can feel like nothing works. So mm -hmm. I implore all of you to really seek out what, what feels safe, what feels secure, what feels anchored what feels regulating for yourselves because it's going to be different for everybody listening um you know megan has mentioned many times escaping to academia or that cognitive intellectual place and feeling safe for me it's it's a bit different and i think we all need to find those places where where you can go because of how often we can get dysregulated as well yeah where when you're so i kind of I, I know Game of Thrones is a place you go for regulation, but when you're in a conversation like this, you can't just like pull up Game of Thrones on your phone. How, where do you go to ground? So a lot of you can't see this, but right now I have like four three toys that I'm playing with simultaneously. Uh -huh. Like this is a, uh, you really can't see this, but this is like a stress. Ooh, that looks and amazing. Cheers. My wife got it for me for Valentine's Day. And, uh, I've been messing with that the entire time we've been talking. So that that's quite helpful. And I think sensory soothing for me is really helpful to help me get back in my body. So like these shell balls, I really like because of the textures. I love those. I have those. I love those. They're my favorite. They make me so sad when you've like overused them and they're like, they, no, they're squishy. Yeah. Put them in the fridge. The, put them in the fridge. Yeah. This thing's full of sand. So this also helps. It's kind of like stretchy. Amazing. Oh my gosh. So those are all really helpful for me. I think that as, you know, for a lot of autistic people really feeling just uncomfortable in their bodies or disconnected from their bodies or whatever the case may be, I think that's why I've always sought out intensity in terms of sport, sports and competition. It's the only time I can feel that. So um, that is a place that I'll go to. Um, but yeah, in conversations like this, it's always got to be like something tactile because otherwise I will just dis disassociate and then I won't be paying attention to you anymore and staring out the window over here. So yeah, yeah. People listening can't see this, but like I've been rocking pretty much the whole time we've been talking, uh, which is really soothing for me. I've also been listening to a song in one earbud this whole time on repeat. Um, I actually learned this trick from Thomas Henley, who I did a podcast with a little bit ago. He said, he mentioned... I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. 
um, I can reach out and ask. But he mentioned that when he publicly speaks, he puts music in his ears. And I was like, that's brilliant. So I've been doing it anytime I speak or like when we're on a podcast. And it really helps me. That's amazing. You know, I did not notice that. I noticed the rocking, but like, obviously, I don't notice that you're listening to music. And right. It just looks fun. like I'm listening to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's, it's a song. So to be able to figure out those ways to have that bilateral stimulation too. And just to be able to soothe and, you know, this chair swivels, that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. If I'm speaking, I'll be moving all the time. So even when I'm speaking at conferences, I'll say it right away. Like I'm going to move nonstop while I'm on the stage. And, you know, I, yeah, I think I hope that it offers people comfort to do the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a colleague who recently did a webinar training where they were specifically instructed, like you cannot move while you're on this camera, like you can't draw, you can't stim, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I was like, what the fuck? I would never do that webinar if I was ableist as hell. Two, I wouldn't be able to sit still. No, no, I I wouldn't either. Yeah. And I think that's why I trouble so much as a kid was just like, Mm -hmm. I could not sit still. Like I can get straight A's all fucking day without having to pay attention. I'm going to be moving while I do it. I'm going to be moving and I'm not going to be looking at you and, yeah. you know, teachers and, and professors who weren't, are not ND savvy are just going to be like, you're disrupting the class. Like you, you're, you're ruining the class atmosphere. <laughs> that was definitely on a lot of report cards. So I'm sure straight A is really smart, really intelligent, disrupts the class behavioral. <laughs> like it's just, you know, both had to be true, I guess, but. And this is why assessors ask for report cards when you do an assessment. They want those, those notes are gold. Yeah. And just having that, like, that uh, collateral information is so helpful to kind of get a sense of, because mm-hmm. you can, myself, Megan, and my memories are quite different about childhood. Like, it would be very hard for me to accurately give yeah. information as a, in any sort of testimonial about, like, what was childhood like? What do you remember doing and not doing? And, it just wouldn't come to me. So cl- that collateral information is really helpful to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Patrick, it is time for our awkward goodbye because I've got clients to get to. Um, I'm not even going to try and like smoothly transition us. I'm just going to like. I like the abrupt <laughs> recommendation. So thanks for everyone listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast on all major platforms like download, subscribe and share. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. 
Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.